turn in two places, to two places in your Bible. First Samuel 15, we'll be there for just a couple minutes, and then we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5, okay? First Samuel chapter 15, and then we will hustle over to Matthew chapter 5, where we'll spend the majority of our time. I want to start the message by telling a short story of two fictional friends, the frog and the toad. Toad decides that he wants to make a batch of cookies, so he did, and they were amazing. The story says he was so overwhelmed with how good they taste that he hopped straight over to Frog's place to share the deliciousness. As the two devour these incredibly tasting cookies, they quickly realize they can't stop eating them. Just as they decide to have one last cookie, they find they want even more. Despite their resolve to quit eating, they find themselves continuing to indulge. So Frog and Toad quickly realize that if they're ever going to stop eating cookies, they're going to have to do something to limit their access to them. The rest of the story details all the steps they take to make the cookies harder to get. I know you're probably thinking, what in the world is a fictional story so elementary, so below us, about a frog and a toad have to do with defeating sin and killing Agag. Well, just hang on, because I'm going to finish the story at the end of the message. You on the edge of your seat now? Superboy ain't got nothing on me. Um, It actually contains a really powerful lesson that we're going to close our message with. So when we get to frog and toad, part two, you're going to know we're almost done. At the beginning of chapter 15, uh, Samuel... Uh, with God's authority, came to Saul and said, I need you to utterly destroy all the Amalekites, spare nobody and nothing. And so Saul went forward, and what did he do? He killed almost all of them. But who did he spare? King Agag and the best of the livestock. So Samuel confronted him, and instead of Saul exhibiting godly sorrow that leads to repentance, he exhibited worldly sorrow. He denied it, he minimized it, he justified it. Um, He was more sorry about losing his kingdom than sinning against his king. And so Samuel had to take care of what Saul was unwilling to take care of. And that's that's where we are in the story in verse 32. Samuel's going to take care of business. Look at verse 32 and verse 33. Then said Samuel, bring ye hither to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came unto him delicately. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as thy sword hath made women, women childless, So shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Here comes Agag. The Bible says he comes into the room delicately. You look that up, it means cheerfully. It was a fake cheerfulness. He was trying to smuse Samuel. Samuel, haven't you hung on to me long enough? You might as well keep me a little longer. You don't need to utterly destroy me. Samuel wasn't amused, he wasn't deceived. I don't know what he had Agag do, but he took out his sword and he hacked him into pieces. That word hewed literally means to slaughter. You know what I think when I think of the word slaughter? I think of national beef, our very own slaughterhouse. And if you if you ever worked there, then, you know, I've, I've taken several tours through the plant. And by the way, I respect everybody that is employed there. It's amazing how hard they work. And, and, and what's also amazing is the process that goes into cows, thousands of them a day, 
from the paddy wagon to the box. The process is crazy. They literally hew those cows into pieces. Right, Randy? I, I mean, there are pieces of that cow going everywhere around the world. It starts as a big old cow and it ends up in various boxes being shipped around everywhere. That's the picture here. Why did Samuel do that? Well, the narrator writes it in that way because he wants to get across a point that Saul should have gotten. And it was this. You can't mess around with Agag. You've got to deal ruthlessly with Agag or he will deal ruthlessly with you. You cannot be deceived by Agag. He will come delicately to you. He will whisper in your, hey, don't utterly destroy me. You've gotten rid of most of the livestock. You've gotten rid of most of the other uh, powerful leaders. You've gotten rid of most of the other sins in your life. You can keep me around a little bit longer. Don't give in to Agag. Don't make a deal with Agag. Don't entertain a deal with Agag. You must utterly destroy the Agags in your life. If I titled the sermon, it'd be this, getting serious about your sin. Because that's the essence of what Samuel did. He said, we got to get serious, radical, ruthless about getting rid of the Agags in our life. Now, what does that look like for us today? Matthew chapter five. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at verse 27 through verse 30. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from me. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. If you remember this passage, we touched on it in, in uh, connection groups not too long ago on the hard sayings of Jesus. And he does say some shocking things, doesn't he here? He says, you can't even look on a woman that's not your wife with lust in your heart. And if you do, you better gouge your eyeball out. Better cut your arm off. And you need to cast it away or be cast into hell. Those are shocking statements. And the reason why he used such shocking, extreme metaphors is because he wanted to get our attention that you must deal with your sin in a serious way. You must deal with your sin in a radical way or it'll just keep coming back. Agag will find his way back in your life if you don't hew him into pieces. And here's what we're going to discover. Jesus gives us a serious standard. And then he gives us a serious strategy. And he does that because of the serious stakes. And so let's begin with the serious standard in verse 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her, or committed adultery with her already in his heart. What is Jesus saying? He's saying if a person wants purity, it's not enough to avoid having a physical sexual relationship with someone who's not their spouse. If they want purity, Jesus said they must not even desire sex with someone who's not their spouse in a lustful way. So he raises the standard of purity from physical acts of fornication to lustful intentions of the heart. Do you understand that when it comes to sin, Jesus always starts with the heart. We're going to see he doesn't end there. He doesn't stop there, but he always starts with the heart. Jesus knows something vitally important in our efforts to rid ourselves of the agags in our life. And it's this, everything that comes out of you was first inside of you. 
The book of James talks about how that sin begins as a little tiny seed of lust. Lust that is, that is very uh, unique to your own desires and your own sinful cravings. And if you, don't, if you don't nip that in the bud, you don't cut that off, you don't gouge that out of your life immediately, then that lust will grow. And then James gives us the picture of this lust like giving birth to sin eventually. Watch, sin doesn't just show up in your life randomly. No, no, you allow sin to run free in your heart before it ever is seen in your life. I'll say it this way, committing sin that everybody sees is typically the last stop on a long road of inward sins that nobody can see. Jesus raises the standard in this text. It's not just about outward conformity. It's not just about the the, the outside uh, rules. It's not just about the the, the behavior modification. He says, I want to raise the standard when it comes to sin. It's about the lustful intentions of the heart. You understand that a dozen things have gone wrong in you before they ever come out of you. So, so if your agag has something to do with your temper, and maybe you're a spewer, so you scream, you're a spewer, so you slam your door, or you punch your wall, or maybe you're a calm personality, you're more of a stewer, and so you just give the silent treatment, you understand that those responses in the flesh aren't random. You understand that they are a result of an agag that that is an untempered spirit on the inside? Young people, when you lie to your parents about where you're going, who you're going with, what you're doing on your phone, you understand that that's not random. You don't do that just because you're a teenager. You do that because there's an agag of rebellion running free in your heart. When we come to church and we're lethargic, And mediocre, we're just lukewarm in our Christianity as a whole. You understand that you're not just going through a phase, but that there might be an agag of spiritual indifference in your heart that you haven't dealt with. When you gossip about someone at work or in your family or a friend or someone at church, you understand it's not just a slip. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. There's something in your heart that might be insecurity, it might be envy, it might be bitterness, but some agag inside here is causing words to come out here. Because sin starts in the heart. Here's Jesus' point. If you want to defeat your sin, it's not by just becoming a good person on the outside. It starts right here. What is the agag running around in your heart that you refuse to deal with? Eventually, it will come out. That's where it starts, addressing who you are right here. Secondly, he talks about a serious strategy. Here's the truth. You can get right with God in here, but that doesn't mean you won't ever be tempted again. You can have a revival inside of your heart, and that's where it starts. But at some point, you got to get practical. And and this is where he gets practical. If I write, I offend thee, hey, pluck it out and cast it from thee. The right hand, if in the cut it off and cast it from thee. In other words, if you're tempted to violate the standard that Jesus set forth, he says the next step you need to take is to gouge out your eye. And not only remove these body parts, do you catch that other phrase, cast it from thee? Jesus isn't going to allow us to retain these sinning body parts in hopes of using them later. He commands that we cast them away and abandon them for any future prospect to use them again for sinful purposes. That's radical. You understand Jesus is just using a a shocking metaphor. Teenagers, don't go home, get a butter knife and cut off your hand or anything. All right? Butter knife's not going to be very effective anyway. 
he's using a shocking metaphor just to tell us this, get radical. Employ radical measures to limit your access to sin. And don't just put it beside you. Totally get it out of your sight. I found this is an incredibly difficult step for people to take when they're dealing with their agags. This is what separates somebody that just wants to come to the altar and someone that actually wants to hew their agag into pieces. What are you actually willing to do? See, when I was a youth pastor, one of the number one things I, I, I counseled young men on is pornography. I do believe it's the Christian man's drug today. And I, I've counseled many married men and adult single men on this issue. And when I, in the very first meeting, I do have sympathy and I do have a lot of patience because I know it's a real struggle, but I also have two rules. And we will not have a second meeting until these two things are done because it's how I know how radical you're willing to get. And so number one, I make him listen to Pastor Wayne Hardy's three-part series on addictions. And he talks a lot about the biological side, neurological side of addictions that, frankly, I just, I'm not an expert in. And he articulates it real well. It's going to take about three hours to listen to those. And I, I require them to write thorough notes. And, and, and then if they've done that, I ask them if they have a smartphone to do one of two things. Um, I ask them to get rid of the smartphone altogether if they can and go to a flip phone. They're unable to do that because of work or whatever. I ask them to let me show them how to get covenant eyes on their phone as well as set the restrictions to the highest possible level. And thankfully on the iPhone, you can set, the, set those restrictions on a crazy high level now. And here's what I found. That over half of the men that I've counseled in 15 years of ministry don't come back for a second meeting. Over half. Because they're not willing to gouge the eye out. They're not willing to cut off the hand. No, I know it's radical. But if there's an agag in your life, this is Jesus' point. You can't mess around. You've got to do more than you are comfortable doing. You've got to do more than what feels natural. If it doesn't hurt, it's not amputation. Does that make sense? It's got to hurt. And I found that a lot of people with their agag, the thing they need to cut off is some relationships. I'm talking about adults. Like, 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 like an agag of an attitude, your agag's your attitude. That could mean that you need to cut off the people in your life that influence that attitude. Your agag is your speech and you might need to cut off the people for a season in your life until you can stop talking that way. Your agag is spiritual indifference and you probably need to stop hanging around with people that are lukewarm. Your agag is the opposite sex, the relationship that you know is negatively affecting your relationship with the Lord. You need to take your sword out and hew them into pieces. <laughs> Not really, but figuratively. Some of you need to take the radical measure when it, when it comes to things that you're allowing your ears to hear and, and your eyes to see. Sometimes I think we get to a point of adults where we think, hey, we know who we are, so we're not affected by these things anymore. Well, when Paul was writing, be not deceived, evil communications, corrupt good manners, he was talking to adults, not a youth group. We never outgrow the, 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 the propensity to be influenced by the wrong people, the wrong, inf the wrong media, the wrong things. And so, so if it's something that, 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 that is affecting your eyes, you, listen, you might just need to get radical with that stuff. I'm not going to watch this anymore, period. I'm canceling the subscription. 
I'm going to totally gouge it out. I'm going to totally uh, cut it off. I'm going to totally get out of my life. And I'm not going to have it anywhere near my sight. Maybe you need to delete some songs. Stop watching some TV shows. Stop reading certain books. You need to go home. Delete some of your social media accounts. That would help a lot of us. Talk about the social media accounts that, that the devil uses to provide access points for Agag to sneak back into your life. Can I talk to the parents for a second? We have the responsibility to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, you know what that involves? It involves seeing the access points in their life that they're unwilling to see. It involves locating the Agags in their life that they don't want to get rid of. And because you have the authority of a parent and the blessing of God in your life, you need to hew the Agag into pieces for him sometimes. You need to prevent the access points for him sometimes. I'm amazed. I'm amazed, Brother Tanner. If the parents say, I don't know what's going on with my teenager, but then they let him do certain things on Friday and Saturday nights, let him hang out with certain friends, let him take their phone to their bedroom at night, and you wonder, this is why it's happening. Parents, be parents. Get your sword out and hew some agags in your teenager's life. You only have 18 years to do it. Maybe the radical measure you take involves your use of time. The devil is attacking you when you're alone. Man, try to spend less time by yourself. When you are by yourself, set safeguards up. If certain things you are spending your time doing distract you from doing the best things, or zap your energy for when you're doing the best things, then you need to limit your time doing those things. They could be good things, hobbies and side businesses and working out and, 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 and a second job or a third job to try to get ahead financially. If those things become agags in your life that, that, that are hindering the time for you to spend focusing on the best things in your life, you need to cue them up for a time. Yeah. You might think this is so radical. I don't know if I can make these changes. I, I think I can try to kill my Agag without gouging my eye out. I think I can kill my Agag without cutting my hand off. If you're thinking that way tonight, then chances are you're considering the seriousness of the strategy. That's intimidating because you're not considering the seriousness of the stakes. And Jesus touches on that in the last part of 29. He says it twice. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Why does Jesus urge such radical measures? Why did Samuel get his sword out? And instead of just piercing him in the sword and kill him instantly, he made the point of hewing him into pieces. And why am I telling you to do the same? Here's why. Because of the life and death nature of the consequences. Please listen. Employing radical measures is the path to life. Indulging in sin is the path to hell. God doesn't want to utterly uh, you know, make your life miserable. He's telling you to get serious about your sin because your sin leads to brokenness and it leads to sadness and it leads to emptiness and death and hell. Righteousness, on the other hand, leads to fullness and joy and peace and life. Amen. Those are the consequences. We're not, we're not talking about like inconsequential things. We're talking about the loss of a marriage. We're talking about the loss of financial stability. We're talking about the loss of a testimony. Talking about the loss of a future. We're talking about the loss of peace. Because you're hiding sin all the time. These are big time consequences. On April 26, 2003, you might know this story well. Aaron Ralston was hiking alone through Blue John Canyon in eastern Utah. If you've heard this story, raise your hand. Several of you. 
He was descending what they call a slot canyon and a suspended boulder became dislodged when he was climbing down from it. The rock crushed his right hand against the canyon wall. He couldn't get it loose. Here's the bad part. He didn't inform anybody of his hiking plans, nor did he take any way to call for help. The only thing he could do at this point was try and free himself from what they found later was an 800-pound boulder. But he just couldn't get his arm free. He literally spent three days trying to get his arm free And here's what the conclusion he came to. I'm going to have to amputate it in order to live. So he had this like two inch pocket knife. It was dull. And he tried a few exploratory cuts to his forearm. And it dawned on him that even if I cut through my first layer of skin, this knife ain't going to cut through my bones. So he just put down his knife. He spent five days slowly sipping on his 12 ounce jug of water, eating small bites from the two burritos he had in his backpack. After the fifth day, he ran out of food and water. I don't want to be crude, but he got so desperate, he drank his own urine. He knew he was going to die that night. He was convinced of it. So he carved his name, date of birth, and presumed date of death into the canyon wall. He videotaped his last goodbyes to his family, and he fell asleep. To his surprise, he woke up alive the next day. And that's when he noticed that his arm had begun to decompose due to a lack of circulation. And it's like he had this epiphany. He could break his radius and ulna bones using torque against his trapped arm. So what his knife couldn't get through, he could break himself. And he did it. And then he went on to amputate his forearm in about one hour with his two-inch dull pocket knife. After losing 40 pounds and 25% of his blood, he then repelled without that arm down a 65-foot wall and eventually made it to someone that could help him. This is crazy. When they went back to retrieve his cutoff arm, it took them 13 men, a winch and a hydraulic jack to move the boulder. Which tells me this. Had Aaron Ralston been unwilling to amputate his arm, he would have died. If it took 13 men, men, a winch and a hydraulic jack, he didn't stand a chance if he wasn't willing to amputate his arm. In fact, here's what he said in an interview. I quote, I smiled as I cut off my arm. I was grateful to be free. How could a man get to the point where he was willing and even happy about cutting off his own arm with a pocket knife? Here's how. He realized how serious the stakes were. He realized the life and death consequences. Hear me. No one removes a limb because it's fun. Or it's convenient. You know why they do it? Because they realize they cannot keep the limb and live. It's life and death. Ask any diabetic. They don't sign up to get their leg amputated. They go in to get their leg amputated because it's the very last resort. And it's the only way they can stay alive. The radical amputations Jesus is calling on his disciples to make and us to make in order to defeat our agag. Listen, they're not meant to feel good. They're not meant to be easy. They're not meant to be comfortable. They're meant to be radical and difficult and painful and costly. But when you realize that amputation is the only way to experience freedom, that's when you'll be willing to do it. The reason some of you still hang on to your agag after hearing a series of messages like this is you just aren't desperate enough. Can I urge you? Cut it off before you get stuck under an 800 pound boulder. Don't let it get to a point where it is utter, hum, utterly humiliating and painful 
and the consequences are humongous before you say, okay, I'll do what it takes. You kill your Agag why it's small. Because the bigger it grows, the harder it gets. And at some point, you're going to need an 800-pound boulder to wake you up. God, help us not let it get to that point. Frog and toad part two. They knew they had to take steps to get far away from the cookies that Frog had made. So I'm reading the story. They tried a number of things. Putting the cookies in a box, tying up the box, even putting the box on a very high shelf. They both realized, however, that they could always undo the measures they put in place. They could still get the cookies if they tried really hard. So at the end of the story, they take the most radical step of all and they throw out the cookies to the birds. Now, with no more cookies to eat, what would they do? The story says that Toad slowly hopped back home, went into his kitchen, put on his apron, turned his oven on and baked himself another cake. The story of Frog and Toad is elementary and silly, but it teaches us this. Outward measures, regardless of how radical they are, can never change your heart. They tried to put the cookies as far as they could out of reach, but eventually they ate them. You know why? No matter how hard they tried, they still wanted the cookies. They wanted them. Never forget this lesson. You can make all the outward changes you want and all the amputations you want. But if you still desire that agag in your heart, you'll find a way back to it. So you might say, if if it's heart change, then why did you spend so much time on radical amputation? Please listen. The emphasis on the need for change in your heart doesn't mean ignoring other more outward forms of radical action. I'd say it this way. Radical measures... Don't change your heart, but they do give Jesus the space necessary to change your heart. Change takes time. Old ways of thinking die slow. New ways of thinking are learned very slowly. And so I don't care what you do, sir or ma'am, radical. What you do alone will not change your heart. But here's what it does. It It gives God the access. It gives God the time. To say, you know what, I'm going to change your attitude. I'm going to change your habits. I'm going to change that sin. But if you aren't willing to give God the space through radical measures, he he won't. He won't. All it will be is just a prayer. God, I'm sorry. And you go back to it. God, I'm sorry. And you go back to it. God, I'm sorry. And you go back to it. How about doing something radical? Do something radical to give God enough time to change the way you think. You understand that there are neural pathways that are formed in our mind that cause us to do bad things over and over and cause us to do good things over and over. Those neural pathways are a lot like the pathways in your backyard if you have a dog. Because the dog has ran there so often, there's that path formed. And the same thing happens in your brain. When you do the same thing or look at the same thing or say the same thing, your brain begins to form these neural pathways and you just begin to act that way by default. You can come and feel good or feel bad, pray, feel good, but you will automatically default to that behavior again when you're stressed out. Or when you're put in the right situation to do it. So what do you got to do? Give God space to recreate the paths in your brain. Give your brain time through through totally distancing yourself and cutting off every possible access point to that sin. Give your brain enough time to rewire itself. To change the way you think. 
And that's the way that you hew your agag into pieces. If you agree with the Bible tonight, say amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet, every head bowed.